speaker here this morning. This is the third of three gentlemen that we've been bringing in here at the beginning of the year with an emphasis on going in mission, that part of our vision statement that uh, Stephen was leading us in just a little while ago. Um, I'll just tell you, maybe some of you may or may not know about the way church planting can work within our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the way church planting and campus ministry can work in the partnership uh, of that. In our case uh, here, Christ Pres of Clarksville was formed some years ago uh, in the, the late 90s as a outgrowth of some other churches down in the Nashville Presbyterian, in particular Christ Presbyterian Church of, of Nashville. Uh, and it has only been in the last two years that a campus ministry here in this setting and with Austin P. just down the street, uh, that that just began. Now, there's something new, though, a new strategy within our denomination in which a church is planted and a campus ministry is, is begun concurrently. And, and you have a, a pastor leading in as a church planter and a pastor who is leading in with that campus ministry. And those men, while they have separate callings, they're able to sort of serve somewhat as, as partners in ministry and, and supporting one another uh, in that endeavor. And you could see how possibly those two communities and those two ventures could actually work in, in, a, in a beautiful, synchronistic sort of, sort of way. Uh, that is certainly the case as what took place in Bowling Green, Bowling Green, Kentucky, just a few years ago uh, when Brian Howard uh, planted Grace and Peace and Fritz Games began the work there at Western Kentucky. Ross Lockwood, who is our speaker now, is was Fritz Games' successor. Fritz left there three years ago. Yeah, Fritz is now serving in a church up in, in Kentucky. Uh, so I just want you all to know that. That's some of the history as to what's going on in our own denomination, our own presbytery. Ross, why don't you come on up here? Uh, he's been here a few times before. Glad, so glad to have you here again. Welcome. Thank you. Be here. Um, welcome. Yeah, again, my name is Ross Lockwood, and it really is a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, I know Austin Royal came in late. Saw you, buddy. You can't, you can't sneak past me. And uh, this is my third year, so Austin is in his second year, which means I've taught him everything he knows. But uh, just kidding, no, Austin has actually taught me a great deal. And it's, uh, again, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm, I'm very thankful for your support and for your prayers of not only RUF here, but all the RUFs in our area. Um, it's, a, it's a huge blessing to us. Thank you. Um, just really quick introduction to me. Uh, I went to Mississippi State University in college. That's where I did my undergrad, and I met my beautiful wife, Ann Todd. It's a double name, two words, one name. And Todd. Uh, we've been married for seven years now. Um, and after we were married, I moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where I did um, uh, seminary. I got my master's in divinity up there. And then, yeah, three years ago today, uh, not today, but three years ago, we moved to Bowling Green. I had no connection whatsoever to Bowling Green, Kentucky. Never heard of Western Kentucky University at all. I, all I knew was that I was following a legend and a giant named Fritz Games which is true, and I'm still in the shadow, but that's okay. Um, but we have loved being uh, at, at Bowling Green, and we love um, doing RUF. We have a, a three-year-old son, Bo, and a six-month-old son named Ira, who has given me a cough. So if I am coughing up here, I apologize. It is my youngest son's fault. I catch everything that he gets. Parents will understand. This morning, um, we're going to be looking at uh, a pretty famous passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. First uh, Samuel chapter 17. Whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you are here and you're a believer or not, um, you have heard about David and Goliath, right? Like in every sporting event that you ever watch, 
whenever it's like Western Kentucky versus Alabama, this happened a few years ago, it's always the David versus Goliath story, to which I'm always thinking, you realize Goliath loses in that story. And nine times out of ten, the, the David loses in this story. But we all know the story. But I know growing up, for me, uh, hearing uh, sermons on this, which surely almost all of you probably have heard sermons on David and Goliath, uh, it was often a, a story that was kind of hard for me to resonate with because I often felt like what it meant to be faithful, what we needed to learn from this passage was we need to be like David. We need to muster up enough faith. We need to muster up enough courage. And we need to attack the giants in our life. And God will be faithful to do that through us. But that's not really good news, I would argue. And I think this passage actually is about good news. Um, and so this morning, I hope that you will be able to hear this passage maybe with a fresh set of ears and eyes, and that Jesus will be magnified and will seem beautiful, and that this will seem like a story of good news for all of us, wherever we are today. I'm going to be skipping around a little bit. I'm going to try to lead you along. But we're going to be beginning in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verses 4, and then uh, I'm going to read a good bit of it. But I will try to lead you um, when we skip verses for the sake of time. This is the word of the Lord. This is verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And the shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul who's the king at this time. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Turn to verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. <laughs> Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. And when his shield bearer in front and with his shield bearer in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He was cute. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help as we consider this passage together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this, for this passage. I pray that you would be with us this morning and that you would remind us that, um, that the battle is yours, that you are our champion, you are, are our victor, and in you um, we can find rest and healing um, and confidence and joy for our souls. Would you please show us that this morning? We ask it. In your name, amen. In 1983, no, I was not born then, surprise. In 1983, uh, at the, the tail end of the Cold War, there was a movie that came out called War Games. Has anyone seen the movie War Games? It stars Matthew Broderick. Uh, I'm just old enough, I'm like just old enough to have watched this movie when it was still uh, really like hot and awesome. But the movie tells the story of a boy, a young man named uh, David, ironically enough. And David uh, is a sort of a delinquent youth who uh, is also a computer hacker. Yes, they had computers in 1983. Um, <clears throat> so he's a computer hacker, and he's in school, and he's struggling with his grades. And so what he decides to do is he decides to hack into his teacher's uh, computer system and to change his grade, to manipulate his grade. Would that we all could do that. Uh, and he changes all his grades from an F to an A. But also while he's doing that, somehow he also hacks into a U.S military supercomputer. I don't know how he does it. This is like 1980s storytelling at its best. But he hacks into this U.S. military supercomputer who is able to, this computer is able to simulate nuclear strikes. Remember, this is the tale of the Cold War. He can simulate nuclear strikes. And so he thinks, oh, this must be some sort of game. I'm going to play as, guess who? Russia. So he plays as Russia, and what he does is he simulates like a bunch of nuclear warheads to be launched over to America, right? Well, what he doesn't realize is that somewhere, I think in the Pentagon, I'm not really sure, they get this alarm that when he sent these, uh, when, he, when he pretends to do this strike, they think it's a real strike. They see on all the computers, oh my gosh, this is finally happening. Russia is coming for us. It's on. It's time for World War III, right? And I think what's so interesting about that story is David, uh, the character in the, in the movie, he thinks he's playing a game. He's just kind of going about his life. But really what he ends up finding is that he's actually in the middle of a war. And I think that's actually the story of, of the people of God. The Bible is very clear that um, you are not just uh, going about your daily lives, going to work, raising your kids, going to school. 
and uh, one day Jesus is going to bring you up into heaven, and that's, and that's the end of the story. No, you are actually in the middle right now on the front lines of a war. Ephesians 6, verses 12, puts it this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are at battle. We are at battle right now. And I believe this passage is actually a representative of the battle of God's people versus the enemies of God. You see, the Philistines, most of us know, were like the arch enemy of the people of Israel, right? Like time and time and time again, Israel comes up against the Philistines, and Philistines is a formidable foe. Um, historians have even noted that they were like, they had these amazing naval ships, they were really strong in bronze and iron, that they had great weapons. Um, and they were a huge army, and obviously they also have this huge giant named Goliath. They were a formidable foe, and the battle is overwhelming to Israel, and the battle is often overwhelming to us. So what can we do in the middle of this battle? I think there's three, three quick points. The first is we can know our enemy. We can know our enemy. When we read this passage, I think our tendency, at least I know mine, is to think that Goliath is like the main enemy of this passage. But I actually want to argue that it's not Goliath. It's actually the Philistines. If you read all of the chapter, you notice that Goliath's name only appears twice. Only appears twice. The word Philistine appears 40 times. 40 times. And a lot of those times, it is the, the writer referring to Goliath as the Philistine. Right? Goliath is just a representative of this power, of this enemy of God, the Philistine. Those armies, those powers which, which defy the living God. Because that's the recurring theme, is what does this enemy do? They defy the living God and defies the people of God. Six times the writer goes out of his way to say they have defied the living God. And we have enemies too, right, that defy the living God. Um, the Bible, uh, just very broadly speaking, gives us three main ones the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 2 puts it this, uh, this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, right? The world, our flesh, and Satan himself, right? Which the, which the Bible assumes he is a real individual. Jesus uh, himself even com uh, communicated with him in the wilderness. Well, what are those three enemies, these enemies that defy the living God? The world, right? The world. The world around us has lots of systems in place and powers that defy the living God. This is especially true for those of us who are in school, I think, actually. Um, and maybe if you're here and you're a college student, um, you live in a place that defies your living God, right? The, the systems that say you are not able to rest. You are not. We defy a God of Sabbath. Because we value a God of productivity and a God of success, right? You are, you, anyone who, who, who finds rest, who rests on a Sabbath, is a fool. Because in order to make it in this world, you need to be successful and productive. And you need to be beautiful, right? And you need to be perfect. These are cultural idols that defy the living God. But we also have the flesh, right? The things inside of our own hearts and our own minds. The ways in which we actually end up defying the living God. Um, some of us, I think our tendency, our idols is our children. I know this is especially true for me, right? 
that we, we put our kids, their well-being, their security, um, their comfort, um, their needs above everything else. Uh, and it, and it, leads to, it leads to disobedience of God's laws. But there's also all kinds of other sins, secret sins that we might be wrestling with. We know these things. I don't need to go into too much detail. But we all know that there are things that we do that defy God's laws and defy who he is. And then finally, of course, uh, Satan, the, the devil himself, the champion of these, um, who defies Christ's finished work in your life. Uh, the Bible uh, presents Satan as the accuser, the one who accuses you day and night, that God's work in your life is not finished, that you are guilty for those things that you've done, that you, you deserve shame and embarrassment for those things that you've done, that no way that God could ever accept and love you, right? There are lots and lots of enemies, lots and lots of enemies that defy the living God. So what enemies are before you this week? What enemies are before you? What enemies are overwhelming you? Know your enemy. But also we need to know ourselves. Again, when I grew up, uh, growing up, I remember reading this passage and assuming that I was David. I need to be David in this passage. But I want to argue that that's actually not the case. Because imagine yourself hearing this story for the first time when it was first written, right? You were the people of Israel hearing this story read. You would not assume that you were David. You would assume that you were who? The people of Israel, right? And we as the church are the true people of Israel, correct? So we are Israel in this story, not David. I also know this, and I think this might be more convincing to some of you. Um, it's a good rule of thumb that when you're reading the Bible, that you are not the Lord's anointed. Um, so if you are reading this passage and you think, oh, I'm the Lord's anointed in this passage, you've already just stopped, uh, call Richard or someone else, and like, let us explain to you how that's not true. You are Israel in this passage, um, or you're an enemy of the Lord, I would say, one of those two. Um, it, it, well, what, how is Israel portrayed in this passage? Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, for some of us who have been in church long enough and who may have, uh, who, who like reading the Old Testament, that passage should sound familiar to some of us. Afraid and greatly, dismayed and greatly afraid. You see, <clears throat> after the Exodus and after God uh, delivers his people, he takes them into the promised land. And in Joshua 1, the people of Israel crossing into the promised land. And what does God say to them? He says, hey, watch out. You're going into enemy-occupied territory. <laughs> You're going to go up against all these armies. Do not be afraid or greatly dismayed, for I am with you. Right? Do not be afraid or greatly dismayed. That's a recurring theme. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I am with you. But what is Israel in this passage? The author draws that language out and says, Israel heard these words, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Why are they afraid? Because there's a huge giant in front of them. <laughs> there's a nine-foot-tall beast that wants to eat them. Okay? This guy is dominating. Right? He's overwhelming. He is dominating their reality. And I think that's true for us. When we find ourselves afraid, right? we are afraid because we have um, what one uh, theologian, and Eugene Peterson puts, we have Goliath-dominated imagination. We have Goliath-dominated imaginations. The things that terrify us, the things that, that overwhelm us, those things are more real to us than the promises of God. And that is why we are afraid. You are afraid of failure. And you have bumped up against failure time and time again. And that thing seems more real to you than the promises of God that you are fully loved and that you have nothing to be afraid We are afraid of being a failure at parenting. We're afraid of being a failure at school. Whatever this is, those things, we are around them all the time. And so it's, 
These things are hugely just overwhelming to us. And they dominate our imaginations. That sin, the sin that you keep failing to be able to overcome, those things that you look at, those things that you say, the way in which you treat your spouse, the way you treat your kids, the way we treat our coworkers, these things that we do that we just, we always find ourselves failing to live up to God's law. These things are overwhelming. They dominate us. I, I'm screw up. I cannot get this right. Why won't God fix me of this? Right? These things, these, these things are dominating to us. And we forget of God's promises, that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. That you are a new creation, that you have died to sin, and that you can live to holiness. These things, these promises, these things that God has told us, they don't seem as real as the things that we bump up against in everyday life. We need to cultivate a God-dominated imagination. That's what David did. This is the only time I'm going to say we should, we should try to imitate David, okay? Because what David does, the reason why David can go forth is because he has a God-dominated imagination, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. What do I mean? Uh, Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way. In the Bethlehem hills and meadows, tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness and, and immediacy of God. He had experienced God's strength in protecting the sheep in his fights with lions and bears. He had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word which he couldn't literally hear, but was far more real to him than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshipped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he couldn't see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity, which he could see. His praying and singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped an imagination in him that had that set each sheep and lamb, bear and lion, into something large, vast and robust God. How does David cultivate this God-dominated imagination? I think what Peterson says, I think what the Bible says, is through things that we would call means of grace. Simple, ordinary ways of experiencing and encountering God. Prayer. Encountering God daily through prayer. Reading, your, reading Scripture. Encountering God through His Word. Being reminded of His promises more often than being reminded of your failures and fears. Coming to worship and experiencing God in fellowship with one another, experiencing God at the Lord's table, experiencing God through His sacraments, these means of grace, these ways of encountering and experiencing God, bumping up against God and His promises more often will cultivate a dominating imagination of God's love and, and, and promises for you. But also, I think, too, he just remembers God's faithfulness in the past, right? Remembering the ways in which God has been faithful to him, which we all have those ways in our life. We all, if we take a moment to think back, we remember the ways in which God has brought us to the place where he has, the way he's been faithful. But there's also one more major way in which we can remember God's deliverance and faithfulness, which leads me to my third point, knowing your victor. How does David win this battle? David is weak. Three times he is mocked in this passage. He's mocked by his brothers. We didn't read the passage, but he's mocked by his brothers. His brother Eliab is like, David, what are you doing here? Go back to your few sheep. Uh, <clears throat> that's literally what he says. Uh, Saul looks at him and calls him a child, basically. And Goliath, I don't know if you caught this, Goliath mocks him and calls him a stick. You're puny. You're a stick. Go away. You can't defeat me. And he's right. <laughs> David is nothing, and he has no armor. Right? He can't wear Saul's armor because it's huge and he's just a little punk. 
He has no armor. He has no weapons. He has nothing. How does David win this battle? He doesn't. The Lord wins this battle. Verse 45 through 47. Let me read this again to us. You come to me with a sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the enemy, the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all this assembly may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Friends, this morning, if that doesn't like stir something up in your heart, you're not listening. Did you hear David's confidence in the Lord's ability to save and deliver? That like there are some great like lines out there. Like you have like Braveheart, like those like rallying cries. Like this should be a rallying cry to us. And it's meant to be that. It's meant to boast our confidence in the Lord's ability to save. And how does he save? He saves through the weakness of a child. God's power is constantly demonstrated through our weaknesses and constantly demonstrated through the weakness of others so that no one can boast but the Lord. And in this passage, he uses one individual to represent himself and his armies. Just as Goliath was representing all the Philistines, the Lord uses one individual to represent himself and us. And he uses David in this passage. He uses the Lord's anointed. And he also uses the Lord's anointed in our own lives, right? In Christ. Christ is our representative. In Christ's victory through his weakness, through a shameful, embarrassing, lowly, disgusting death on a cross, the most weak, the weakest thing you can possibly imagine is dem- demonstrates the power of God and his deliverance in our own lives. 1 Corinthians 1, and Paul puts it this way, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness, who became to us sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Christ has become your salvation. Christ is your victory. Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your salvation. He is your sanctification. He is your glorification. He is everything. He represents you. And if you are in Christ, you are united to him in a way in which there is no differentiation between the two of you. His righteousness and victory is yours. What does that mean for us? That means your worth is so instinctively, that's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying, tied into Christ's worth. You don't have to bow down to the cultural idols of success and productivity. You don't have to do that. You don't have to bow down to the cultural idols of perfectionism and beauty. You don't have to do that because your worth is not in those things. Your worth is in Christ and in Christ alone. And you really are freed from sin. Because you are in Christ and his victory is yours, you are freed from sin. He has delivered a death blow to sin and to the powers of evil. And God really can heal you of those things. You really can live unto righteousness. 
and the champion of evil, Satan himself, has no claim over you. Those accusations, those things that you tell yourself, those things that you feel about yourself, that you're worthless, that you're guilty of your sin, that God could never love you, those things were nailed to the cross. Christ is your righteousness. You are righteous before a holy God. There is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Christ is your victory. The battle is the Lord's. So we can remember those things. We can remember the, the, the victory of Christ. Remember Christ's cross. You see, you are not able to defeat the Goliaths in your life. <laughs> You're not. You don't have what it takes. The battles are overwhelming. But the Lord's anointed was. The Lord's anointed was able. Because God's power was demonstrated through his weakness. So rest and remember his victory. Let me pray and ask for God's help uh, for us to, to be able to believe these things. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you so much that you have, by your own grace and by your own love, united us to your Son, that his victory is ours, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the things that um, scare us. We don't have to be afraid of the things that make us feel guilt and shame before you, but you have given us righteousness. You have clothed us with your, with your Son. You have adopted us. And you have made us perfect before you by the blood of Jesus. Thank you so much. I pray that this morning that this would not just be a theory. It would not just be some, uh, some good ideas, but that this would be good news for all of us. And that we would receive it and rest upon it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was considering the, uh, the table this morning that we're about to come to, uh, I remembered an, uh, something else that David says in Psalm 23. Most of us know Psalm 23.